Hi everyone, this is Teresa Chan again. I'm really sorry to bother you, but I'm hoping you can click on our podcast survey link and maybe give us some responses. I know it takes us a couple of minutes, but just think of the really, really happy medical students that will be on the other end of that survey that are hoping for your answers. They've been working really hard on making the survey really, really useful. And so hopefully you can help us by helping them. All right, so here's your episode of this month's podcast. Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. All right, everybody. This is Tichian, and I'm reporting with Dr. Tim O'Shea, who's an associate professor here at McMaster's uh, Department of Medicine. He's an ID doc, but has definitely branched out beyond his uh, specialty training and is the lead or co-lead, I guess, of the Ham Smart program here in Hamilton, Ontario. Tim, I'm excited to talk to you, even though I've lost my voice. Thank you, Teresa. It's great to be here. Great. So can you just start and tell me just what, what does HamSmart stand for? HamSmart stands for the Hamilton Social Medicine Response Team. Okay. So I've seen a lot of tweets about this. Some people, especially in emergency medicine, there's a whole movement of social EM as like a hashtag on Twitter. But can you tell me a little bit about what social medicine is? For me, I think the way that I would define it would be it's medicine that takes into account both the disease process and the environment in which the disease process occurs. So it takes into account the patient's living situation, their environment, their income, all of the factors that might contribute to somebody either getting sick or or their ability to get better from a given illness. All right, that sounds really interesting. I mean, we have all these CanMeds rules and we're always trying to think about the patient as a whole person and the physician as a whole person. And I think a lot of the I see a lot of resonance between this and like the wellness stuff that we're seeing in our own in our own lives, right? Like the idea of physician wellness and that our context is like everything, right? Like if you're in a super bad environment, it's really easy to get downtrodden as a physician. And so I can see the same things happening all over the place with our patients. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot of parallels. I think that you're right. I think we're paying a lot more attention to our own environments in terms of our own social factors in our own lives and how that influences the work that we do. And paralleling that, taking into account the stresses and resilience factors in our own patients' lives that might help them to to be healthy. Yeah, and been some great debates about whether or not we should be just focused on personal resilience or looking at systems change. And the way I see it is that social medicine is the systems change part, right? Like it's incorporating both. It's creating a new system to take on problems that have been brewing for a long time. Right, and I think it does. Invo- it, it requires us to get involved in things that maybe we're not used to getting involved mm-hmm. in, things that might be a little bit more systems-based or political mm-hmm. in advocating for our patients to have 
better environments, better life situations, better chances to to be healthy. Yeah, it's really hard though, right? Because I mean, the Hamilton Spectator has had their Code Red project. I mean, we've done a second round, and I don't think I saw us move our mark very much, eh? Right, and I, and I I um, read Steve Wiest's summary of that, and I really agreed with one of the one of his takeaways. He referenced a quote from I think it was President Eisenhower who said that whenever he sees a problem that he can't get his head around or that he can't make a difference in, instead of kind of narrowing down on the details, he tries to make things bigger and to yeah. step away and to look at the bigger picture. Yeah. And I think that we have been struggling with this in Hamilton in particular, like you said, for 10 years and really not made much of a difference. Yeah. Time to and, zoom out maybe. Yeah, and time to look at, at what other factors might be influencing that or, or getting in the way of us actually moving the needle, Mm -hmm. because I don't think anybody would argue that we haven't tried. There's been a lot of effort put into it. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of people thinking about how to do it better. Mm -hmm. Hospital systems have been engaged in the issues. Sounds like their strategic vision is to get more engaged. So that's very interesting as well, right? Maybe it's a hands-on deck kind of thing. Maybe it's that we're not taking a systems level. It's hard to diagnose the problem when you don't really understand what's going on. Right. And I think we need to, as a healthcare um, group, start to engage other partners that maybe understand these issues a little bit better. Right now, you have a soapbox for the region's emergency physicians. But this spans all the way from like Fort Erie all the way over to KW and up into Brantford. And, and we're trying to create this podcast with an audience that's targeted at the McMaster-affiliated emergency physicians. So what do you want them to know about and how might we be able to help this bigger social medicine movement? Very good question, and I don't know if I have a very succinct answer to it, to be honest with you. I think that I struggle with this a lot because I, I the patients that I see and that I deal with often have very negative experiences in the hospital and often feel very unwelcome and really, to be, to be blunt about it, traumatized by their experience with the hospital. And I don't know how to make that better, to be yeah. honest with you, because I see, I also walk through the emergency room and talk to my emergency room colleagues, and I see the reality of what's going on on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is that there isn't a lot of time to pause and think about where is this person coming from? What, why mm-hmm. might they be acting the way that they're acting? What's their yeah. bigger context and their bigger uh, life experience? Um, so I don't know, I don't know how to get past that issue of, especially in a busy emergency room where things are coming at you in rapid fire, how to how to incorporate some of that in. What I would say is that I think that it's, it's important to try to keep that in your mind in your quiet moments, that there's very few people, I think, that want to be in the emergency room and want to be in the hospital. Um, most people are in a crisis situation, obviously, when they come and, they, and their, their experience in the emergency department colors the way that they're going to interact with the healthcare system in the future. Mm-hmm. And, and I've had patients who have had one terrible traumatic experience and then really, really avoided healthcare to the detriment of their health, uh, in, in some cases really even leading to their deaths. So it can be very, very impactful. And on the flip side of that, I've had patients who feel like they don't deserve healthcare, they don't deserve kindness, um, and have had one very simple, kind interaction with a healthcare provider that mm-hmm. really flips things around and, and can change their life. Yeah, I was reading this book. It's called Be Our Guest. It's about the uh, Disney customer service, like, I guess, their program and how they and the philosophy behind it. They're, and I mean, admittedly, Disney's probably going from good to great. Like, you're probably okay if you're going to Disney World, but they want you to have a great time. And I've started thinking about how I might take horrible and mi- mitigate some of that to being like, at least meh. Or like, okay. Um, And I think that it's probably the same like distance from good to great and from horrible to meh, 
right? And so if we can steal some things from the playbook, I think it's actually a big point of view and a big shift, right? Because a lot of the time, yeah, like the house is burning down and we are trying to put out fires all over the place, but that stop, pause, and how can I help this person move the mark a little bit? How can I be a little kinder? How can I just make this one experience not horrible? I think that is a great way to frame that question. And I think that even if we just bear it in mind, we'll probably act better than we did yesterday. Sure. So. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think, I mean, it's a very simple thing, but kindness makes such a, such a big difference. And despite, you know, all the skills that we have and all of the training that we have, really, oftentimes it just comes down to that idea yeah. of kindness, which, again, can be hard when you're feeling super stressed and it's been a terrible day. But it's a skill and it is something yeah. that you have to foster and practice for sure to yeah. keep your humanity and kindness in your interactions yeah personally i have to say one of the things has been since i've tried to shift my thinking i've been happier i'm getting more high fives from my patients and they're not the three-year-olds that are like looking for after they pulled their elbow back into spot you know like it's not those people it's like you know 50 60 year olds that normally might have yelled at me and are now like you know really happy on the way out and they're discharged home maybe they're just someone that i went to like for a mile for got bus token or a taxi voucher because ambulation is a problem. I think these are the things that we need to think about. If if every shift we can move the mark a little bit on one, maybe one person to start, that would be a great way to, you know, think about that, right? Agreed. Yeah, we're not going to conquer this on a whole right away. But I mean, I think that when a selfish point of view, it's always nice to know that if you're kinder to other people, that you will feel that kindness too. 100%. And I think that we have such a physician wellness problem and so much of us are experiencing burnout. But part of that, the buck has to stop somewhere and you can really only control yourself. Like we can take down the system in the long run if we all coordinate. But I think a big part of it is what can we each do tomorrow? Agreed. So. Well, thank you so much for your My time. Um, your talk was super inspiring. I saw like a small entourage of residents descend upon you right away. But if people want to get in touch with you, I guess you said that the HamSmart website is a good good place to start? Correct. www.hamsmart.ca, H-A-M-S-M-A-R-T. Excellent. Not the Simpsons way of smelling it. Eh? That's right. Okay, yeah. you got to make sure yeah. there's an extra exactly. A there, okay? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for your time, and we'll hopefully have people to reach out to you. I'm sure there's innovations in KW, Niagara that are all popping up that are trying to tackle the same problems. So if you're involved with any of those, please reach out to Tim, and you guys can all trade secrets and, and up the ante for our patients. Thank you, Teresa. Okay, thank you so much. Bye. Tired of boring teaching? Do you feel like your on-shift teaching is just the same thing, rinse and repeat over and over again? Do your teaching evaluations look like photocopies of each other? Well, we have a segment for you. Welcome to Teaching That Counts! Welcome back, everyone, to another awesome segment of Teaching That Counts. We're super excited to have Krista Dahos back with us for an episode about teaching how to make it stick. Krista, I think we're making things stick, but not like the last time I tried to make pancakes and ruined a pan. I think we're talking about knowledge here, correct me? That is correct. So tell me, I've been studying my whole life and I still feel like I don't got it. I reviewed hyponatremia last week and I can't even remember a single thing I read. How do I actually make it so that what I'm learning actually sticks? This is something that I still struggle with and will continue to struggle with it. but. One strategy that I found helpful 
is to move away from a mindset that is fixed and move towards a growth mindset that is okay with discomfort. Somebody told me once that learning is done when the learning is painful. Not actually painful, but difficult. <laughs> You're bringing back memories of when I had to put an NG in myself in med school. So, oh my God. <laughs> too much information, Olivia. Too much information. But, but, but I do think that what you're talking about there is kind of the idea of the desirable difficulty, is what is written about in the literature. So, the idea that if something is too easy, you're going to forget it, right? It's kind of like, I mean, we've all been told answers before, and that answer doesn't stick at all in my brain. But if I actually had to look it up, then it does stick, right? My dad used to tell me about how when he was a medical student, he's a doc in Niagara, an internist, and it was before the internet. So um, he'd, you know, like, get given some feedback. He'd, like, go to the library and look something up, and then he would memorize it. He would really memorize it because he didn't want to ever have to go back to the stacks and look it up again. Uh, but now with up-to-date, like, I can just keep looking up the dose of whatever all the time. I don't have to – I don't have the same – impetus to to look it up so i i i definitely get the sense of if it's if it's too easy sometimes it doesn't stick well so i think that when there's an impetus to make it stick that urgency that difficulty actually helps kind of prime your brain to stick it in there krista how do you balance that because you don't want it to be so difficult that you're you're in that stressed and unlearning zone how do you keep yourself in that happy zone where you're learning but still a little bit stressed a little bit scared yeah good question there's a few different ways I think the first thing that we need to do is accept ourselves as imperfect trainees and physicians. And that in itself makes learning a little less painful because if we have the idea that we need to be perfect and we need to get it right every time on the first time, we will be sorely disappointed and we're not gonna have very much fun. So this, that simple mind shift can ease the pain a little bit and make it a little more fun to make mistakes and learn from them. The second way that I make sure I have a sustainable way of learning is trying to learn in different ways all the time. When things get redundant, they get much less fun and much more painful. So if on one day I'm listening to a podcast about DKA, maybe the next week I'm going to have an in-person face-to-face chat with one of my co-residents about DKA. And then maybe the next week, I'm going to review up to date around DKA. I think this is a great place to plug in games, right? Because I, I totally love gamification for this, right? Because the more ways you can engage the mind and the more you can make it competitive, oh man, if you make something simple competitive, it just heightens it to a whole new level, right, Chen? 100%. There's this game called Empiric. Uh, which is uh, developed by a PEDS ID doc, inspired a little bit by our gridlock team. He decided to finally make this game he'd been toying around with for a long time using flashcards. Uh, And it's a really addictive game. Like my partner, who is a lawyer by training, now knows what the appropriate antibiotics are for most pediatric conditions. It's amazing. (laughs) That's awesome. I just picture him now like totally just like suitsing it up and just like walking around and be like, no, that is not the right dose of antibiotics. (laughs) It's actually viral illnesses are treated with uh, no antibiotics and supportive therapy. I'm like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's great. Um, He's like the Mike Ross of the medical world for sure. (laughs) So Krista, you've talked to us so far about growth mindset and really kind of um, thinking about that, embracing the difficulty, and then also thinking about multiple ways to kind of encounter the same material. 
Uh, is there any other tricks that, that you have that uh, help things make, make them stick in your brain? One that we all know helps us remember what we learn is to make what we learn case-based. So somebody telling you something in a lecture hall, you're just getting words in your brain that aren't linked to any feelings or visuals or smells or anything else that's really going to anchor it into your brain. Whereas when you're on shift and you have a patient that's invoking some emotion and looks a certain way, that's the type of experience that you want to link to a learning point because then there's so many more anchors to anchor that learning point to your brain and making it more likely that you're going to remember it in the long run. I 100% think that that's a great way to think about things. Making things real is something that I had struggled with when I was a resident. I actually had one of my colleague and uh, mentors, Andrew Healy. He's, you know, like at some point I was really amped up about my feedback and, uh, and I, I just disclosed to him that I, I thought I was doing a horrible job. And he's like, no, actually you're not doing a horrible job. You're, you're doing quite well about upon par with your other colleagues, which was great because I thought my colleagues were really, really smart. But the one pearl that he gave me that was really important was that he highlighted that what I had to do was try to take the book, the textbooks, right? The Rosens, the Tintinelli, the guidelines, all the stuff that I've been reading, the book knowledge and translate that into real knowledge. And what you're telling me is that you also need to do the reverse, right? You need to map the real life experiences that you have, the sick patient in front of you uh, to real life uh, content and map that back to the textbooks so that they, they flow seamlessly. And that totally makes sense now that I know more about neuroanatomy and how we actually encode things in long-term memory, right? Like you need to strengthen the neural connections between reality and the textbook and textbook and reality. So it has to flow both ways. So I totally think that that's amazing. This is that annoying feedback you get after every shift, right? Where someone says to you, read around your cases. I think that's exactly what they mean, Chan, right? Like they I mean, know. take yeah. the experience that they had and, yeah. then, and then go back and say, what did I not know about this case? What if I change one element of this case? Can I actually look at a part of it, physiology, anatomy, diagnostics, management, whatever, and actually like, create an area of knowledge or build on an area of knowledge because it will create those extra connections. So I, I always... I always wondered what they meant by that, but I think you just explained what read around your cases means. Yeah, and I think that we can also do better by explaining that prescription when we tell people to read around their cases. Um, I think we can also say like mid-shift rather than the end of shift, because I think that if Krista is working with me, let's say next year, and we've got a really sick patient who needed 17 different interventions to resuscitate their really bad heart, right? Like, and we've done the entire ACLS. We also did dual sequence defibrillation. We also did all this fancy stuff. Um, and... Uh, when we're kind of wrapping up that case, I might, I might ask Krista to step aside for even just five minutes and like give her one thing that's really high yield to read through right now and just sear that information into that case, you know, just meaningfully. Because I think that we don't with intention kind of use that heightened state to really kind of like add a little bit extra learning sometimes as teachers. And it's honestly probably because we're just still revved up and still kind of super revved up from the case so that's probably why it is but I actually find that for myself that's actually how I do my CME now too with a sick case and I had to look something up and then you know I get I get through the case the patient's in ICU and now I spend five minutes before I go talk to anyone before I do any kind of debriefing and do any other interaction with people I check the tracker board and they read very quickly uh, so long as there's not another critical patient around the case that I just had just to refresh my memory and it's 
a lot easier as a staff, as uh, obviously. Um, but uh, I do think that it's probably worthwhile for us to think about using that heightened emotional state to help retrieval as well. So I think that's a brain hack that we can all kind of try. Uh, there's a lot of science behind why that might work. I think you're really modeling a growth mindset there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> all right, Krista. Uh, I think we're kind of getting into the territory where we're talking about like um, that idea of that working memory and we're talking about long-term memory. What are some other things that we can do to like really kind of uh, strengthen those neurons? Yeah, so this is also sort of in the same vein of uh, the desirable the desirable difficulty or learning that is just slightly painful. One thing that can help to make it stick is to try to generate answers to a problem uh, as opposed to reading them or just asking your preceptor to answer them for you. And that can be scary because mm -hmm. we can fear being wrong. So I have needed to catch myself in the past if I don't know the answer to something, if I'm seeing a patient and I don't know how to proceed. It's instinctual for me and other learners to say, what would you do? And it can be instinctual for preceptors to just say, I would do this. What's better for learning though, and what's better for making it stick, is if instead I say, this is what I plan to do. What do you think? Then you're still practicing safely and you're still getting the input from the preceptor, but then you're actually generating an answer which takes more cognitive effort and you're forming those connections by generating that answer, even if it is wrong. And if it is wrong, that's great because then you're going to learn why it's wrong. I love that because it's basically you've just reiterated us back from the learner side what it means to for us to get, get you to give a commitment. And so we've talked about that in the past on this podcast series about how we want to get the learner to give a commitment. But it's amazing if you know the learners would just come with their commitment fully formed and I don't even have to pull it out of them. So I love that you're role modeling that, uh, Krista. That's really awesome. Yeah, that's a shout out to our one minute preceptor that we already covered in a previous segment. Mm -hmm. But flipping the script again from the learner point of view, like, yeah, just really take that time to look things up, really deep dive into resources to try to construct the best answer. It's kind of turning your shift into like one giant endless PPL which is kind of scary, but at the same time, that's truly what PBL is meant to foster in people, right? Problem-based learning for those of you who are listening that are not at McMaster, and that is not a common acronym. But uh, I do think that really anchoring to those cases, the specificity, the, the, the urgency, the, the need for it is a very good way to kind of anchor your brain and your neurons to some new knowledge. One of the people I worked with a couple of years ago from the Alium team, Catherine Patoka, she's a program director at University of Calgary now for the Emergency Medicine FR program. And uh, she and I worked on a paper that was looking at point of care resources and how learners use those resources in the clinical space. And it seems like in our conceptual framework there, what we want uh, hopefully more junior learners to do is take that time. Like you've, we're expecting you to take like an hour or more per case. So don't rush yourself. Like don't be, don't be giving into our uh, peer pressure to like move on because uh, we're going to be bouncing around because we're like, oh, you're ready to review, ready to review. And it's just because we're super caffeinated and probably our adrenaline is super high. So um, if you're a learner and you need more time, you, you just need to say, can I have a couple more minutes and look something up? Don't give in to the, 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 
the urgency that we've falsely created. Uh, most of the time, unless your patient is actually really sick and then you should tell us, but otherwise you have time. Like you have time to look something up and then help add a little bit of learning into each of your cases. So I think that um, Chris is giving you that role modeling and I'm giving the permission and hopefully uh, that that will give you a chance to think about it from that point of view. And I think the commitment is one of the big things I struggled with when I first became staff, because exactly like Krista was saying, there's this tendency to turn to your staff and say, what would you do, right? And just kind of follow along with what they say, but really starting to make those connections in your minds to an actual plan of action forces you to think like a staff. And I think it really helps with transitions, whether that's from clerkship to residency or residence to staff them or junior staff to senior staff. Uh, I think that's a really good piece of advice. Krista, what else do you got for us? How, how do we really take this to the to the next stage? All right, so this one is going to be possibly not so popular with my colleagues, but it's this idea of retrieval practice. And one way that I like to do this is actually asking to be quizzed. Because let's be honest, I'm not gonna go home after my long shift and quiz myself. So I've, actually asked staff because staff have asked me how do you like to learn best and I have said feel free to just quiz me say if I saw a patient and I come up with my management plan ask me okay well what would you do if this patient was pregnant or what would you do if this patient was five years old instead of 70 years old so actually inviting a process of quizzing, which I think people are often very scared of, but again, it's being open to being wrong and therefore being open to being quizzed, allowing you to have some retrieval practice, which can really ingrain concepts into your memory. Yeah, I really like what that idea of the what if game too that you're talking about. It's something that I've heard Amal Matu, he's a famous emerge doc from the States that uh, does a lot of teaching stuff. Um, it's it's a great permutation and I think that looking at the opportunity of taking one case and turning it into like five by just having some slight variation on the case to help you think through okay what if it was a five-year-old like you said that really is a really good way to kind of uh, anchor that uh, case as well so bringing back stuff that you've talked about previously it takes one case and turns it into five cases which is like five for the price of one which is I think awesome. Uh, Aline were you going to say something? What's the difference? Like, is retrieval practice just pimping with a new name? I'll take that a little bit. Um, I, I actually think that retrieval practice is anything where we're taking your long-term memory and we're calling it out and bringing it back to your working memory. And so it could be uh, question and answers like Krista has suggested. But the other way that you can do it is just um, when you're studying, right? So I did this a lot with my rural college studying. I had, um, I think, 1,400 flashcards that I went through. And I had this like massive um, game that I made for myself because I like games. The idea would be that I would go through a flashcard and I would go through a deck like of a hundred of them. And when I knew the answer, it would go in one pile. And when it didn't, it had to cycle back into the pile. And I would keep doing that until I had like 50 flashcards left that I reviewed the day before for really short-term memory gains. <laughs> but like it was, it was, uh, it was a month worth of endeavor, but uh, that was how I practiced my retrieval. And then one of my colleagues, um, Ian Robles, he's a 
graduate here of the orthopedics program. And so lots of things to memorize there, lots of eponyms, lots of memorization. Uh, and his insight to me when, cause he was a year above me in residency, he was like, when you're studying for your world college exam, you have to use retrieval practice, it's evidence-based. Uh, and so you have to think about um, uh, how you uh, force that. And so he would read a passage, he would then recite everything that was a key point in that passage. And then he would review it one more time by writing it down and then he would keep going. And so he generated those notes and then he reviewed his notes and did the same thing and retrieved and retrieved and retrieved. And when, and sometimes psychologically it's a lot safer to just fail in front of yourself. So using flashcards or some people use apps now that's famous. Uh, there's a bunch of apps that Anki is the one that I think Brent Toma has recommended to me. Cause like, why are you so techie? Why are you using handwritten flashcards? I'm like there's science behind that. I, the writing is important, but um but there's uh, also apps that can actually do a lot of that space repetition, retrieval practice uh, stuff with you too. And I think you're pointing out the difference between studying strategies that are high yield and those that are low yield. Because I'll always have students come to me, especially in clerkship, who say, you know, I studied so hard, I spent X number of hours, and I didn't do great on the exam, or I'm not doing as well as I'd like, what am I doing wrong? And when you break down the strategies that they're using, they're using such low level studying techniques, stuff like highlighting, stuff like kind of trying to memorize exactly what it says, instead of really taking the information out, applying it to new scenarios in the what if model or in the case-based model, and then also quizzing themselves with flashcards or things like that that allow you to bring things back after a period of time. Yeah. The other important thing to remember here is that as you're studying, you'll feel like you're doing worse. And that means you're doing better, which is something that took a while for me to get it. Because there's that familiarity, right, that comes with just rereading the same passage. So you think you're learning, but you're really not. And so some of that difficulty, coming back to Krista's point about being just outside your comfort zone, that's where the real magic happens. That's where we can really learn and shine. Yeah, I mean, they've even done studies in uh, learning environments and everything from K through 12 to higher education, active learning strategies where people do case-based learning or problem-based learning in those classrooms, like whether it's a math class or an economics class, uh, students often feel like they're not learning anything uh, because they're just like struggling with the material and yet they perform much better on the test. Um, and they say, oh, there's not a lot of teaching going on, but they're actually learning a lot, but they just feel like they're, they feel like it's not happening. And so you have to also be just cognizant that you might feel that way for a little bit, but then when a quiz comes along, you're like, I know the answer to that. I know the answer to that. And then one more thing that I was going to point out as another teaching pearl for those of us that are teachers, there are lots of people that are like Krista that are very psychologically safe and will just lean into more questions. And that's awesome. But there are some people that might feel embarrassed, especially if you have a complicated teaching environment where you have multiple layers of learners. Like if you ask the PGY5 a question and they don't know it and the medical student gets it, it can be a really kind of demolishing uh, experience for that person, especially if they're close to the exam period. So one of the techniques that our former clerkship director that preceded Aleem did was quizzing on a piece of paper. And so Masood Jalair, shout out to Masood, for a long time has been using this technique and a bunch of us have adopted it as well. We write questions down on paper and, uh, and quiz kind of more passively. And yet, like, sometimes you'll still walk back and there'll be a whole page of uh, explanations and you just mark it up and that's how you get feedback. And so it saves people from the embarrassment of the out loud, uh, what we call, quote unquote, pimping, which I don't like the term, but that's what people call it. And it's quite useful for uh, the, the multi-layered learner situation where it might be such a busy shift. You can't be in the same room and the same time with people. And so what you can do is just have that piece of paper where you put down three quiz questions and say, hey, answer these when you've got a couple of minutes. And uh, that's quite fun as well. I like that idea. I think I'm going to take that. That's something similar to 
the Google Drive and Google Doc idea that's been going around, kind of a modern take on that. But um, coming to Chris's point and, and previous podcasts where we talked about like learning objectives and feedback, that's something where at the beginning of the shift, you can open up that doc, jot down the learning objectives, and maybe you throw a couple of retrieval practice questions in there at the end just to, to really hone, hone that shift and tighten up the objectives that we're going with. Yeah, and, and I think that when I have more than one junior learner, sometimes I'll have an elective student and I'll serve with PGY1 and they might have similar learning needs because one's super keen on emerging, the other person hasn't done it for a year. And so sometimes we can set up a friendly game of Pimp the Expert, which they have to construct a question for me and they can ask and that, that can be helpful too. And number one is that when I don't know, I just role model that it's okay to not know and we all look up the answer uh, and number two you're kind of forcing retrieval by the construction of the question which is a sneaky way and i've just given away my secrets but uh it's also a fun way to make it so that you know like the med student can one-up me and i'm psychologically safe enough that that's fine with me all right so it sounds like we have a lot of cool pearls thank you so much krista for spending some time with us again today as another guest spot on teaching that counts uh we really value the learner perspective and we're so excited to have you here and we're so excited that you're here for a whole year as an emergency medicine resident so thank you so much for participating today thank you guys so much for having me that was lots of fun that's all we have for this month's teaching that counts tune in next month when we go through another teaching pearl for, to up your game if you have new ideas, we'd love to hear them. Or maybe you want to be on our show, even better. Write us an email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Hey, everybody. It's Aleem Nagji here, EM Clerkship Director. As many of you know, we ran into this little problem called COVID, and that kind of changed everything in clerkship. As part of that, our clinical decision rules presentation went millennial. So now the clerks are working on podcasts, blogs, infographics, and videos to try and showcase their knowledge of these CDRs. So as part of that, we decided we would make it a competition. We thought about making a lottery, but the admissions program had already done that. And this wasn't going to be just any competition. This was going to be like too hot to handle. And so we had to have multiple judges with many points of feedback so that we could crown the one winner. And the winner is... Wait a minute. We have two winners? Can we do that? Oh, I can do whatever I want? Oh, okay, cool. We have two winners this time. The first group with Darius Lemaire, Megan Chu, Kirillos Farag, and Hassan Abdelkhalik looked at the Canada C-spine rules and made an awesome high-quality video. Through their video, they emphasized that Canada C-spine rule can reduce unnecessary C-spine imaging without missing clinically significant diagnosis. This is a great bedside resource for clerks, and I'm sure some of us clinicians could do with the refresher. The second group looked at the ABCD2 score for strokes and TIAs, and through this amazing infographic, looked at some of the modern evidence and came back with a do not recommend the reason is, it probably doesn't change management from the ED. So the group of Galen Chan, Yash Duan, Ian Jones, Rosemary Nam, and Sarika Pavalagantharaja came up with an amazing bedside resource for the ABCD2 rule. Thanks to our celebrity judges, Jonathan Taves and Brian Levy. And as well, thank you to Teresa Chan and Kevin Dong for their consultation on all things virtual. For all of you who are missing clerks and want to get more involved in teaching, or if you have innovative ideas or suggestions, don't hesitate to reach out. I know things have been in a lot of flux right now and we've been trialing a lot of new things, but we'd love your input 
and feedback. Thanks to all our amazing bedside clinical teachers out there and hope you're staying safe and enjoying the weather. Take care. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello everyone and welcome to this month's Resident Corner episode. Thank you very much for tuning in guys. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing two of my newest colleagues in the FRCP Emergency Medicine Program here at McMaster. Ben Forrestal and Lauren Beals are two of our incoming PGY1s and I'm super excited to have them here today not only because I want to introduce them as our incoming residents, but also because they're here to talk to you about an innovative project that they started now a few months back. The two of them are both the creators and hosts of a new podcast in the block called ClerkCast. Ben and Lauren, congratulations again on starting your residency program. We're so excited to work with you. And thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you, Joanna. A uh, real pleasure to be here on the Mac Merge podcast, as well as here in the Mac Merge program. Really excited. For sure. Super excited to chat. Now, I alluded a little bit to the reason why I have them here, other than just, you know, one to talk in general with these two guys, but ClerkCast. Ben, tell us a little bit about how did this idea of ClerkCast first start off? Well, Lauren and I were young medical students a few years ago. And of course, being interested in emergency medicine, we were trying to listen to podcasts, look at blog posts, look at those non-traditional ways of learning. And despite the fact that there are so many amazing blogs and podcasts out there, we found that there was a lack of resources for medical students. And there was nothing that was at the level for us that brought up those core foundational principles of emergency medicine. So with that in mind, we decided that we wanted to make our own uh, podcast and blog-based educational curriculum. And that's really what set off the idea for ClerkCast. Pretty awesome. So start off with a needs assessment. It sounds like identify what's lacking and create a resource. Now, Lauren... What would be your elevator pitch on what is ClerkCast? So ClerkCast is free, open access medical education centered around emergency medicine topics that is written by medical students, now PGY1s, uh, for medical students. Right now, ClerkCast is a 10-episode series where each episode is a podcast, and that podcast will cover an approach to a high-yield clinical presentation in the emergency department. So we have episodes on things like chest pain and abdominal pain, things that you're going to see all of the time in the department. Each episode features Ben and myself as the co-hosts, as well as a preceptor from the McMaster faculty, whether that be a staff member or a senior resident who helps us cover each of these topics. Uh, each podcast episode also comes with a cheat sheet infographic that you can pull up and review some of the high-yield topics on. Pretty cool. An educational resource for your clerks, correct? 
Exactly. Even though we're saying that it is for clerks, really, it's an awesome educational resource for anyone who wants to, you know, quickly look up the approach to these cardinal presentations in the emergency room, right? Oh, for sure. Uh, One of the things that we hope with ClerkCast is that at the end of the shift, if you are working with a medical student reviewing some topics, it can be something really helpful to recommend as opposed to just reading around cases that you saw. We know that in medical school, our emergency medicine rotations are so brief that oftentimes we don't get to see or talk about a lot of the really important serious pathology. So ClerkCast can be a nice bridge that allows you to cover more topics, even with the limited amount of time that you have in the department. Pretty awesome. And doesn't sound like a small project by any means at all. Quite the contrary. So Ben, maybe you can take us a little bit through the prep work that went into this. How did you guys get ready to begin with to take on this project? Yeah, so ClerkCast has already been, I guess, almost two years in the making. So Lauren and I first met and chatted about ClerkCast in the end of 2018. And thankfully, we got connected with MedEd extraordinaire, uh, Dr. Teresa Chan, who was able to link us up with some of the big podcast uh, medical educators at Canadium, uh, particularly uh Adam Thomas, as well as the new uh, CrackCast hosts. And we've been able to get some feedback there about our suggested curriculum. From there, we did a needs assessment to determine what topics needed further education for medical students on their emergency medicine rotation. As I said before, there are so many FOMED resources out there. We want to make sure ours was high yield and was something that would benefit all medical students. From there, Lauren and I need to get our podcasting chops. And so we went to uh, Anton Hellman's podcasting camp last fall, where we learned all the ins and outs of medical education, podcasting, recording, editing, all that sort of fun stuff. And then only in uh, the fall of last year, 2019, did we release our first episode. So it's been quite a journey to get here, but we've learned so much along the way. No good projects comes without the prep work beforehand. And I can speak from my own personal experience. It was a similar thing when we started the Mac Emerge podcast. Started off with going to the workshop, started off with all the prep work. But it sounds like one of the valuable and really important aspects of your prep work was not only the typical stuff like the needs assessment, but the community of practice that you were able to learn from. You mentioned some of the big names like Dr. Teresa Chen and Adam Thomas and others, but really, really important to have that support, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. When we first met with Dr. Chan, she said, you can do this alone or you can do this in the team. And of course, We love emergency medicine. Teamwork is way better. So being able to have that community of practice at Canadium to access for mentorship and help promote our materials has been instrumental in the ClerkCast curriculum. Very inspiring. Now, as we all know, uh, I'm sure between the three of us and our listeners, uh, every project comes with its, you know, ups and downs, correct? 
Lauren, maybe you can take us through one of the things that you feel has been the best part about being involved in this project. Absolutely. I think it, Ben really nailed it when he talked about how great that collaborative element has been. Um, we have had just so much support from the McMaster community, whether it was faculty members volunteering to review content, um, residents volunteering to help co-host episodes and look over the topics that we were hoping to cover and kind of add feedback. I think we've just had so much support along the way. And in addition to making the episodes that we're putting out that much better, I think selfishly, as someone who's interested in emergency medicine, it's also been really nice personally to just kind of get that expertise and on things that I use pretty much every shift. Um, so I would certainly say that that collaborative element has been really excellent. Absolutely great. The best way to learn is to teach a topic. That's what they keep telling us during residency. And Ben, what about you? What has been the best part about being involved in this project? Yeah, I think I can almost echo what Lauren's been saying, but even going more broadly, it's a big world in emergency medicine, but FOMED makes it a lot smaller. So being able to learn from people across the country about medical education and podcasting has been so rewarding personally. And it's something that I hope to be able to give back to in the future for other aspiring medical educators. So you mentioned some of the great things about being involved in this project. What about some of the challenges? I'm sure you've had a few down the road. I think at this point, kind of looking back, one of the most challenging aspects was deciding on what our personal brand was going to be. We know that there is so much FOMED uh, that's available, particularly to students and residents who are interested in Emerge. And so deciding what our point of view was going to be and what our unique angle was going to be in that community was something that took a lot of fine tuning. And I think we had to go back and forth on, you know, what is the depth of information that we want to cover? How are we going to keep these episodes consistent, even though we're covering very different material every time? Um, but I think it was a very rewarding process in the sense that once we landed on what that brand was, uh, we stuck with it. And I hope that the product that we've produced does have that unique point of view and is helpful to students for that reason. Well, as a listener of ClerkCast, even though I'd like to think I'm no longer a clerk after many years now <laughs> in postgraduate education, you absolutely have a brand and it shows that you guys put some thought and put some work into this project before, you know, it's starting off in the first place. What about you, Ben? What has been, the, you think, the most challenging thing for you? I think something that's been tough with the ClerkCast project is having a timeline and sticking to it. I think at the start, we thought we were able to get things out really quickly. And I think we were a bit naive. Medical education takes a lot of time. And the amount of work that goes into even a 30-minute clerk cast episode is maybe like 10 hours to get everything cleaned up and released. So I think the time commitment is a lot greater than I expected. And I think fitting in time to work on ClerkCast, especially in the last year of clerkship with CARMS and electives was quite challenging and has made me appreciate my time management skills a bit more. 
but also an important challenge to talk about for our listeners who may be interested in starting their own podcast or are looking into starting whatever new project. Yeah, it's like starting a small business. Like there's a lot of work that has to go on behind the scenes before you have a final product. So I think that was something that, yeah, I didn't quite expect and now really appreciate. But boy, is it ever satisfying when you see it take off, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. <laughs> um, so we've talked a lot about what ClerkCast is and the best part about it and some of the more challenging aspects of this project to begin with. But what about our listeners who want to, you know, maybe they have heard about ClerkCast, maybe this is the first time they're hearing about it. How can they access these episodes Lauren, what are some of the resources or avenues that you guys have used to make this resource available for our listeners? So ClerkCast is written and produced in partnership with our friends at Canadium. So anyone who's interested can just go to Canadium and search ClerkCast. All of our episodes are available free online uh, through a podcasting platform. And you can also download the infographics there as well. And in the next coming weeks, we also have some exciting add-ons. So we're working on some show notes that you can pull up uh, just to review some of the major points and potentially some flashcards for a bit of spaced repetition learning. Oh, that spaced repetition. That's so important in retention of memory, as we know, in medical education. But speaking of infographics and some of the resources that you mentioned, we will also make sure to include the links um, to ClerkCast in our own infographics for the Mac Emerge podcast when this episode uh, is posted. Well, Lauren and Ben, thank you so, so much to both of you for being here today. I'm super excited to see that where this project has taken the two of you and when the, where the two of you have taken this project specifically. And it sounds like it's been a very rewarding experience and we look forward to uh, future episodes for sure. Yeah. Thank awesome. you for having thank us. Thank you so much. Okay, guys, to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Back emerge out!